بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله حمد الشاكرين والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد طب القلوب ودوائها ونور الأبصار وضيائها وعافية الأبدان وشفائها وصلى الله وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد كلما ذكرت الذاكرون وغفل عن ذكرك الغافلون Today's subject on Kubra al-Yaqiniyat al-Kawniyat The major universal sureties What things are we sure about and what do we have certainty with regard to? The first thing that we have certainty with regard to is Al-Iman Billah. Al-Iman in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then of course when we elaborate on Al-Iman, we have Al-Iman Bil-Quran, Al-Iman Bi-Sayyidina Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and the deen of al-Islam. These are major universal sureties. But Islam, the deen of Islam, is not restricted to some acts of ritual, some acts of worship, and does not have a narrative that completes man's thinking of his place in the universe. Meaning in terms of the stages we go through from Alamul Arwah, the world of the souls, to the womb of the mother and the fetus growing in the womb of the mother, to childbirth and then the stages of life from childhood to becoming teenagers and then into adulthood and then middle-aged and then after middle-aged, shaykhukha, old age, and then dying, and some many people dying before that. Then the stage after death, death being the separation of the ruh, the ruh, the secret of the person, which is when we speak to ourselves and we say I, what do we mean by I when we say me? What do we mean by even saying me? Who is me? It's in reference to the ruh, the ruh which is placed into the body from which when the connection occurs between the body, the material biological body and the ruh, that brings about something which we know as nafs. Nafs is the appetites. The appetites are something we live with on earth. And then the ruh is contained within this biological, physical body which has its needs, material needs and the ruh has its needs. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the creator of man has sent down a revelation to guide humanity in terms of their spiritual journey and guidelines with regard to their material well-being which we know as Sharia. So the human being is given this Sharia to look after himself on earth, but at the same time to be the caretaker of the earth, which is Khalifa fil-Ard, 
inni ja'ilun fil ardi khalifa when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said indeed i am making upon the earth a khalifa it means a caretaker someone who takes care of the earth that is the role of the human being but the ruh then when it's contained within the body it will either be corrupted and the corruption is kufr unbelief which then entails that when the angel of death approaches such a person and the ruh is released from the body that ruh is corrupted and is only suitable for hell the nature of that ruh the nature of such a spirit is that it can only reside in hell like sometimes you have some drug addicts homeless drug addicts if they are rehabilitated they cannot live in a normal home with no drugs they need their drugs they stay homeless they run away from the re rehabilitation place because their nature has become accustomed to being homeless similarly kufr unbelief is such a place that it suits what it suits jahannam the nature of kufr the corruption of the soul is that jahannam becomes only suitable for that soul and similarly with belief with iman that when the believer has iman in allah the nature of the soul is not corrupted the fitra the fitra the natural predisposition predisposition of the soul primordial state of the soul is preserved and the person then enters paradise which has numerous names and of course the delights of paradise or the punishment of hell is such that like on earth we have the dominance of the body the material body but the soul is hidden in the akhirah the soul is dominant and there is a body but it's a reverse of the realities on earth on earth the material biological body was dominant and the soul is invisible in the akhirah the body is visible but the soul is more dominant and the soul the ruh its interactions in that realm relate to its nature so for instance we have the seven heavens the seven concentric circles of universes that exist beyond this observable universe meaning if someone looked down the hubble telescope and the, uh, they observed the known universes and galaxies beyond that beyond the speed of light there are seven concentric circles which may even be invisible to the human eye but there are the nature of that world is in accordance with the nature of the ruh so when the angel of death extracts the soul the soul ascends and it ascends and then journeys through those realms which are unseen by the naked human eye that is the journey ultimately everyone must go through which we refer to as death death the person who is to die is referred to as al-muhtadar 
the one who, who is present uh, for what? For death. The angel of death will arrive. The angel of death will remove the ruh. And that is why death is painful. But the believer is distracted from that pain with the delights of the akhirah. Distracted. That even if it is painful and difficult, eventually the soul is taken out and the eyes roll upwards. The way the soul entered when the person was a fetus, the soul entered from the top of the head. And then the first faculty to be formed is the faculty of hearing. This is why most of the time in the Quran you will hear that the faculty of hearing is mentioned first and the faculty of sight is mentioned second. Hearing is more important than seeing. But the faculty of hearing is established first. But what happens now when the soul is being taken away? You have the reverse. That when the soul is taken up, the eyes roll upwards because the person dying is attempting to observe. When the vision disappears from the physical eye, he attempts to visualize rolling his eyes upwards but then he is observing with the soul with the ruh a concept which is even acknowledged by christians you read c.s lewis's screw tape letters how he describes death very similar to how we muslims conceive the removal of the soul of course there are finer details which are found in works like al-imam jalaluddin as-suyuti's sharh al-sudur the opening of the hearts more detail with regard to the nature of death but that's just a part of the journey and from the major universal sureties that when we are on earth what is our ultimate function why are we on earth is our functioning just a material lifestyle that we accumulate things material things or are we here for an ulterior motive, a motive which is far superior, which is what? Which is recognizing and acknowledging our ubudiyah. What is ubudiyah? Servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is the major universal surety. When you come to that conviction, you realize that many problems are resolved through strong conviction that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us on this earth for his ma'rifah, to know him. Something which decreases the level of hurt when a person undergoes experiences which are hurtful. Something which is referred to as evil. People refer to those things as being evil, the problem of evil that we observe on earth even though much of the what is referred to as evil is man-made like a young man recently in Birmingham drank so much alcohol became drunk and then drives his car up a one-way road or up a uh, the opposite direction of the traffic 70 miles per hour crashing into another car killing the driver of the other car but he survives himself. When he survives, he's paralyzed. Additional to that, he has other damage in his lower body. 
but he is a Muslim and he should have known that he should not be drinking alcohol. But will he question the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the world the way it is? The answer is yes, he will question such things, but he will never question his own actions. This is facing the problem of evil and the difficulties of this world. That when a person realizes his ultimate destination is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the purpose of his life is servitude, then the problem of evil becomes bearable. But how do we re go to certainty with regard to the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? You would be shocked at the type of objections young people bring up today with regard to the existence of Allah. The most absurd being that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists, then why do we not observe him? Of course, observing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this world is impossible because the very nature of Allah is such that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the self-subsistent, which is what? that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not in need of anything else and anything that has that nature is not observable in the ephemeral world, in the world that we live in. Like we cannot observe the known universe eternally, you cannot observe everything in the known universe. We cannot even observe the entire oceans. Created beings, created inanimate objects or created uh, nature by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then how can we observe the creator of such things? So the vision of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the absence of the vision of Allah in the dunya does not entail the non-existence of Allah. But what happens is that if a person has decreased love of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam and they increase their love for something else they choose the love of something else over the love of Allah that is what we refer to as kufr if you observe kufr unbelief it is actually the love of something other than Allah that someone prefers something that exists momentarily over the one who is what? Eternal, Allah. Love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the meaning of al-Iman. And preferring the love of Allah over the love of material things is what we refer to as al-Kufr. With regard to rational proofs, for the existence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How the traditional theologians of Takallimun, how they reach that conclusion is of course through firstly the existence of the self. And then what Al-Imam Ibrahim Al-Bajuri rahimallah mentions, wujudu hadhil makhluqat, the very existence of creation. Something alluded to by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in Al-Qur'an al-Kareem in Surah Al-Dahr 
when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says هَلْ أَتَى عَلَى الْإِنسَانِ حِينٌ مِّنَ الدَّهْرِ لَمْ يَكُنْ شَيْئًا مَذْكُورًا This is known as istifham in Kari, a rhetorical device in the Qur'an, which is what the question to which we know the answer. Has a time approached حِينٌ مِّنَ الدَّهْرِ عَلَى الْإِنسَانِ Upon human, هَلْ أَتَى عَلَى الْإِنسَانِ a small time when this insan when he did not exist and he was something unmentioned the response would be that human beings did not exist for long epochs of time for long periods of time so when time was created Humans did not exist. How is time created? What is time by definition? Time by definition is movement. Time by definition is movement. Movement of what? Movement of physical bodies. So we t measure time, for instance, through the movement of the sun and the moon. That is time. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists beyond time. He transcends time because he exists as he has always existed, which is free from time and place. Because for time to exist, you need physical objects to measure time with. Like the, sun, the movement of the sun, the movement of, or the observable movement of the sun. In reality, the earth goes around the sun and the movement of the moon around the earth. This is the measurement of time. But time can only come about when material is there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala existed before the material world. And then when time came about, there were long epochs of time for which human beings did not come about. And then suddenly the humankind or the first human being came about, which is referred to in Al-Qur'an Al-Kareem, the story of Sayyiduna Adam salam, which tells us, informs us of the origins and reality of humanity, where they come from, where did they originate from, hundreds and thousands of years ago. But even if we measure human time today, and we go back 13.6 billion years or however many universe, uh, light years, 13 point something billion years, light years, we go back to point zero before the expansion of the universe. Someone regulated and had the will to create the universe and humankind. Because the only logical response you can have is that we came from nothing which is an absurdity because you would have to mean absolute nothing because if you conclude that you came from something then there is no absolute nothingness like Lawrence Krauss famous atheist he has a book a universe from nothing this book you read the book 
painstakingly when you reach chapter 9 or thereabouts, he sadly informs you that the universe actually did come from something. But he claims that he is not bound by the philosophical or theological definition of nothingness, which is absolute nothingness. So absolute nothingness, human beings cannot come from absolute nothingness. Similarly, we did not create ourselves. Someone created us. So when that is the conclusion from just that one question which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asks in Surah Al-Dahr that has they come upon humankind a short period of time when he was something unmentioned, the answer is there were long periods of time from the inception of time or the known universe until very short history when you compare the hundreds and thousands of years for which human beings have been on earth with 13.4 billion or 13 point whatever billion light years from point zero it's a fraction of time very small minute fraction of time this human being now when he acknowledges that there is someone who placed him on earth sometimes will then say that why do we need a sharia from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because if you really look and study the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala objectively you will realize that there is nothing irrational within the attributes so we'll start from al-wujud of Allah Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala exists and that has very basic logical proof like wujud al makhluqat the very existence of creation demonstrates the existence of a creator but this creator must be must have the attribute of al-qidam that he is beginningless because if he had a beginning then that would entail he has an end and anything which has an end cannot create because it's perishing in its very nature so it finishes the absurd question sometimes people ask they say if you say the known universe necessarily has a creator then how do you know the creator of the universe himself does not have a creator the response is very simple that if that creator had a creator this would finish uh, with what uh, continues regress ad infinitum to no end which is an absurdity because the very nature of the world and the universe is what we refer to as contingent what do we what do we mean by contingent that which comes into existence after non-existence that is the meaning of al-hawadith al-huduth the very definition of al-huduth is that which had no existence and it came into existence such a thing cannot go on forever in regress because this entails that it has its own self-subsistent cause which is absurd because we observe the accidental nature of the known world around us the uh, 
the essential nature of that world around us is such that it perishes, a perishing world. This must stop at a point where the cause of the universe is self-subsistent, independent. And that is the meaning of al-qidam and al-baqa, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is everlasting. So you have al-wujud, al-qidam, al-baqa, and you observe that that is a logical conclusion. Then you have al-qiyamu bin-nafs, that this creator is what? Independent. Because if he relied upon something else, something external, then he would become like that thing and he would not be eternal in nature and would be unable to create the known universe. And then al-mukhalafatu lil-hawadith in opposition. In opposition to what? In opposition to the contingent world around us, bearing no resemblance. And remember many people who become atheists or deists or abandon Islam for some other theology, many of them will fall into the mistake of resemblance. That they liken Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the creation. A fact contradicted by Al-Quran Al-Kareem where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says لَيْسَ كَمِثْلِهِ شَيْءٍ وَهُوَ الصَّمِيعُ الْبَصِيرُ there is nothing resembling him, yet he is all hearing and all seeing. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bears no resemblance to creation. So, if people ascribe to Allah a physical form like a man on a throne with a beard, or the will of Allah, the divine actions of Allah, they compare them to human actions, then they fall into the to the quagmire of questions like what? Like asking the question why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates certain things the way they are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not bound by our morality. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not bound by how we conceptualize things. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not bound by our moral law. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us a morality, a moral law. And if morality did not have its source with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then morality becomes something what it becomes, uh, according to some people, relative to time and place. It becomes a place of speculation. Morality becomes what? speculation that changes every few decades 50 years ago same-sex marriage was deemed immoral today some people deem same-sex marriage as being a moral choice on what morality did they base this on on human experience but allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed an immutable law to mankind that they follow the law of Allah and not the law of man. That we choose to follow the law of Allah, not the, the law of man. Because the law of man changes every few decades according to political pressure. So that is a part of resemblance. That 
when we give resemblance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the creation, we can fall into various types of mistakes. Likening the divine actions of Allah to the, the motives of creation. Creation has various motives. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will have wisdom in his actions. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not have a personal motive. You cannot ascribe personal motives to Allah. So when people say, why did Allah create us to worship us, to worship him? Why did he create us to worship him? Why does he need our worship? This question is flawed. It's flawed because the person is ascribing a need to Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not create us because he has a need of us worshipping him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us as a divine favor. Having life, intellect, free will and choice is a favor from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala demanded from the human being is only ma'rifah. What is ma'rifah? Acknowledging him which is known as Ubudiyah, the opposite to which is Inad, the opposite to which is Kufr, disobedience and unbelief, covering the real nature, the real fitrah, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed within us to know him and love him. So when we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we must know this attribute of what Al-Mukhalafatu Lil-Hawadith that he bears no resemblance to creation whatsoever, whether in his divine nature or in his divine actions or his divine names and attributes in any way or form. It's a common problem for some people to fall into this and then question Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala simply because they have fallen into the fallacy of likening Allah to the creation. Then you have attributes like al-wahdaniyya, oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the non-multiplicity of gods. Because you have atheists who believe in no God, which is khilaf al-fitrah. It goes against our nature to believe in no God, because in essence, atheism is an assault on the mind. It's an assault on the mind that denies basic precepts. It denies basic precepts of the mind, judgments of the mind, when you examine atheism in depth. And then you have polytheism, which is shirk, which is believing in multiple gods at one point. This is illogical and it violates the right of Allah to be worshipped alone. And then you have tawheed, which is uniquely found in Islam, found in Judaism, but the problem with Judaism is what? That Judaism initially was the deen of Islam, which was then tampered and made into a racial religion, which became known as Judaism. Islam is a universal religion. Islam is a, uni a universal religion or deen for all of humanity, not just for a specific race of people and not tampered. Islam is the only deen 
meaning Islam as it was revealed on Sayyiduna Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which has not been tampered as the adyan uh, which were revealed from Allah, the deen of Allah has always been Islam, but it underwent tampering. So there are a few distinctions between the previous scriptures and the Quran, which people need to take note of. What are those distinctions? Firstly, the Quran is the only revelation that was revealed over a period of 23 years, which eased in the people into acting upon it, unlike the previous scriptures. The previous scriptures were revealed in one go. The Quran was revealed in Arabic and related to the people in Arabic. The previous scriptures were revealed to the Anbiya but they were related to the people in their own languages, not in the language that they were revealed in. The Quran was revealed and is the only holy book or the scripture of revelation that was memorized entirely in the lifetime of Rasulullah by hundreds and thousands of companions. Unlike the previous books, the previous books were never memorized by numerous people. Were never memorized entirely cover to cover. Even today, I would be surprised if there were Jewish rabbis that had memorized the Torah verbatim. But even if there were, you'll never have thousands and thousands in every country, people who have memorized the Torah like they have memorized the Quran. Another distinction, the Quran has always been mutawatir, mass transmitted. What does that mean? In every generation, so many people have transmitted the Quran through tawatur, the concept of tawatur is what? That it becomes impossible for so many people to concur upon a lie. The previous scriptures were never mutawatir. They were most similar to what we refer to as al-hadithul qudsi. Al-hadithul qudsi is what? When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says something to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa through revelation and Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa conveys that to us in his own wording. But it is khabrul wahid reported by one person or two people. But the Quran is mass transmitted. Most importantly, Al-Quran al-Kareem Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says inna nahnu nazzalna dhikra Indeed, we revealed a dhikr, meaning Al-Quran, and indeed we will preserve this Quran. That means the Quran is preserved by Allah, unlike the previous scriptures. The responsibility of preserving the previous scriptures was left to those nations. This is why the Torah and the Injil were tampered. Many people ask, 
How can the word of God be tampered? The response is that the, the guidelines were given to the people of those nations to preserve their books, but they did not. They tampered with the scriptures. But when Al-Quran Al-Kareem was revealed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guaranteed the preservation of Al-Quran Al-Kareem. So, bearing these things in mind, uh, when we, as I mentioned, we analyze the attributes of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you will find all of them to be what? Rational. Like the attribute I've mentioned now, al-wahdaniyah, oneness. And likewise, all the other attributes which are mentioned in Al-Quran Al-Kareem. But when a person receives this guideline of knowing that he's, the, he's creator, the one who has placed him on earth, he has given him a revelation which is Al-Quran Al-Kareem and a Sharia, a law to which, by which to live his life, people those who leave Islam tend to leave because of Hawa. What is Hawa? Hawa is the deep desire to do something else. So what do they find objectionable? They find something objectionable in the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They tend to question the Sharia, Allah. Why do we have to have restrictions? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create us in such a way that we live on this earth with laws which restrict us, that we cannot follow our passions and desires as we want. So based on passions and desires which envelop the heart, which is a spiritual illness, they make an excuse to reinterpret the Quran and sometimes to even abandon the Sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. A group of people that we know of the, as so-called Quranists. What are these so-called Quranists? They are people who reject the Sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam because they say because of the Sunnah there are so many disputes in the Ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Is this claim correct? The answer is no. The claim is totally untrue. The disputes are because of the nature of humanity. If you read, for instance, Surah Shura, in Surah Shura, which is just 25 of the Quran, you find a verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if he had willed, he would have made humanity ummatan wahida. He would, would have made all of humanity into one nation. Meaning with no disputes. But what does that mean? It means if Allah had willed that humanity becomes one nation, it would mean human beings have no will. No free will. When they have no free will, they are compelled they are under the compulsion to unite. But when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created humanity with free will, there will always remain ikhtilaf. Disputes will remain. So what does this group 
intend to do, they intend to abolish the sunnah, to state that the sunnah is not valid, and unite everyone upon the Qur'an. But as they say, out of the frying pan and into the fire. How? That when you say you unite everyone upon Al-Qur'anul Kareem, every individual will have his own unique interpretation of Al-Qur'anul Kareem. Like the verse, the thieving man and the thieving woman amputate their hands. Through the sunnah, we know that this firstly applies when the hakim is a Muslim applying the law of Allah. But when he applies the law of Allah, if a child is caught stealing an apple from a shop, this law does not apply. Because anyone who steals foodstuff, the law does not apply to him. It doesn't apply on young children. It doesn't apply on mad people. All these conditions, shurut. How do we know all these conditions? Not from the Quran, from the sunnah of the Prophet Yes, the jurists then will dispute some minor details. But as a whole, they are united upon the, the broader details. In fact, the sunnah unites people. But if you got rid of the sunnah, then everyone will attempt to apply their mind and will conclude differently and dispute with one another. But the jurists, why is the difference amongst the jurists permitted? Because in reality, as the Quran was revealed in seven ahruf, the Quran was revealed in seven ahruf. Seven ahruf entails that certain verses of the Quran could be re recited in certain ways. So the revelation of the Quran was revealed in seven ahruf, which then became preserved. Some of these ahruf became preserved in the qira'at. Some of these ahruf were preserved in the qira'at. Similarly, the previous nations had laws which were so stringent that if someone had impurity on their clothes, they were commanded to cut the garment and throw it away, discard the garment. While in Pauline, Pauline Christianity, if you have impurity, it's, it does not affect the ibadah. But the Sharia of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is such that if someone has impurity on the garment, they simply wash the garment. They do not discard the garment, nor are they forgiven for having impurity. It's a balanced sharia. It's a balanced law. So this law of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was revealed in such a way that some disputes were permitted in the sharia. That Rasulullah dispatched a group of companions, Ali Muridwan, as narrated in the Sahih of Imam Bukhari, to pray Salatul Asr. 
uh, when they were dispatched, they were dispatched to a fortress to conquer a fortress. And Rasulullah gave them a dispensation saying that hasten and pray your Salatul Asr, late noon prayer at the fortress. Those companions later disputed. One group said the meaning of the command was what? To hasten and rush and to reach the fortress but pray on time. The other group of companions, they took this command literally. And when they reached the fortress, they prayed the salah, delaying the salah, but following the command. Later on, when the dispute was taken to Rasulullah he permitted the prayer of both groups. This means that the Sharia was revealed in such a way that there is a scope for disputes which is embodied today in the four schools. The scope of disputes is embodied in the four schools. So within the four Sunni schools, this gives leeway to people in certain conditions, in certain scenarios. And all four schools are in fact a Sharia from Allah. So rather than claiming that the Sunnah is dividing people, the Sunnah is in fact what has united the Muslims and in interpreting the Quran correctly. And then those aspects of the Sunnah, which people may dispute, the four Sunni schools are the reason for the unity of the Muslims with regard to interpreting those aspects of the Sunnah. Like for instance, the verse in Al-Quran Al-Kareem where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says Kulu wa shrabu, eat and drink hatta yatabayyana lakum al-khaytu al-abyadu min al-khaytu al-aswadi min al-fajri until the white string becomes distinct from the black string from the dawn what happened the Sahabi radiallahu an, he took this command during the month of Ramadan, consuming food, eating food at iftar time, uh, suhoor time, pre-dawn meal, eating, and then he took a string, a black string, and a white string, and he placed the white string and the black string under his pillow, and then he kept observing the two strings until he could see the difference between the two strings. Then when Rasulullah became aware of this, he said to him words to the effect that you must have a huge pillow. He said, why? He said, because the meaning of the white string is the dawn, the light of the dawn. And the meaning of the black string is the darkness of the night. That when you observe the dawn entering, then desist from eating. That is the guidance of the Sunnah. So a person who is reading the Quran, he can misunderstand so many verses of the Quran, but he needs guidance of the Sunnah of the Prophet Sometimes some aspects of the Sunnah will need clarity. And that is where the guidance of the four schools enters. But is that dispute a bad dispute? The answer is no, that is a permitted dispute. 
Why is it permitted to give us a leeway to make things easy for the Ummah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam? So the Quran and the Sunnah, the Quran revealed by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is the divine love letters sent to humanity. These divine love letters are contained in the Quran, 114 Suwar, 114 Suwar of Al-Quran, chapters of the Quran, which are each sentence is a love letter from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, packed with wisdom. When we unpack uh, the tafsir of the Quran, it's, uh, you realize that it's packed with wisdom. So many various verses of Al-Quran Al-Kareem. And then the, the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam is what is the tafsir of the Qur'an. And this is why Al-Qur'an Al-Kareem states, وَمَا يَنْطِقُ عَنِ الْهَوَىٰ He does not speak from his desires. Whom? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. إِنْ هُوَ إِلَّا وَحْيٌ يُوحَىٰ Indeed, it is only what wahyun yuha, it is only revelation sent down to him. Meaning, even the speech of Rasulullah which is referred to as al-hikmah in the Quran. The word sunnah is not found in the Quran. It's referred to as al-hikmah. That hikmah, wisdom, is told to us in al-Quran al-Kareem. Similarly, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ Whatever Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gives you, take it. So one of these so-called Quranists, he said that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam gives you, entails the Quran. When he gives you the Quran, take it. If that were the case, then the Quran states, وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُوا Whatever he prohibits you from, then desist. So that would not mean giving the Quran. Rasulullah gives you something, if it, that is the Quran, then what he prohibits you from the Quran is telling us that desist. So Rasulullah foretold a time when a man will be reclining. And when he will be reclining, this hadith is narrated in the Sunan of Imam Abu Dawood and others. He will give people the Quran. And he will say to the people, whatever you find in the Quran, make it halal. Whatever you find prohibited, make it prohibited. But Rasulullah warns with regard to such people saying whatever Allah has prohibited, whatever Rasulullah has prohibited, is in fact what Allah has prohibited. So an example of this is given uh, animals with canine teeth. We cannot eat them and consume them. So dog meat, for instance, we know dog meat is haram, or let's say leopard meat is haram, eating a leopard. The prohibition of that is not found in the Quran. You find the prohibition in the Sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Likewise, the details of so many acts of ibadah. Wa aqimus salah. 
establish the prayer. We do not find the details of salah except in the hadith where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam states, Sallu kama yusalli. Pray the way you have observed me pray. So this is the importance of the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Meaning reciting the ahadith. A few weeks ago I was delivering a lecture and someone asked, how can we warn people with regard to reading the books of hadith? Billah. I was shocked at the question. The questioner is thinking that the lay person is prohibited from reading books of hadith. This is not the case. The lay people are encouraged to read Quran and hadith. What people are prohibited from is making legal judgments from their own opinion when reading the hadith. What they should refer to is whatever is unclear, then they refer back to Al-Madhahib Al-Arba'a, the four schools. So the Quran, the majority of the Quran is clear. But when we need commentary, we refer back to the Sunnah. The majority of the Sunnah is clear. But when we need commentary, we go back to Al-Madhahib Al-Arba'a, the four schools, which give us clarity on those things. So, so many tenets of faith, the details of faith are detailed in Al-Quran Al-Kareem and the Sunnah of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. An example of that is the belief uh, with regard to the return of Sayyiduna Isa Alayhi Salaam. Sayyiduna Isa Alayhi Salaam shall return back in the end of time. But where do we find details of such a belief? Firstly, with regard to the ascension of Sayyiduna Isa alayhi salam, it is very clear in Al-Quran Al-Kareem. Which means what? Rather, Allah raised him. The raising here is a literal raising. Now, some of the Qadianis, the followers of Mirza Ghulam and others who deny the ascension of Isa salam, they say that the raising of Isa salam is the raising of his status. This is totally incorrect. In fact, it's Tahrif al-Quran. It violates the understanding of the Quran through clear Arabic language. Because if the meaning is he was raised in status, then the meaning would be what? Because the Quran states, Allah raised him in status to himself. That would mean Isa has been raised to the status of God, which is false. entails a location, but then the counter objection. The counter objection is then that would mean Allah is in upward direction. The response to that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ilayhi yas'adul kalimu tayyibu wal amalu salihu yarfa'uhu. To him, Ilayhi yas'adu ascends. Al kalimu tayyibu, the pure words. 
the good actions, he raises it. He as well. So the way the good actions rise up, the good word rises up, it has an ascension. Isa was raised up to where a heavenly ascent. The ascent is heavenly because the good actions and the good words rise up into the heavens. Similarly, the, rising, the raising of Isa was heavenly. But then we have the descent of Sayyiduna Isa which is mentioned by over 20, oh, around no less than 28 Sahaba. 28 Sahaba, they narrate that Isa salam will descend in the end of times. 28. There is no way that 28 Sahaba will concur to agree upon a lie. And then from those 28 Sahaba, numerous other students which are known as at tabiin and their students which are known as Atba'u Tabi'een, they all relate that Sayyiduna Isa will descend in the end of times. This is a, a, an aspect which is known as Tawatur, mass transmission, that people cannot concur upon a lie. So like this, the tenets of faith of Iman are built upon the teachings of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So once we understand that the Qur'an is preserved and its explanation which is the Sunnah, that is also preserved. The tenets of Iman are preserved within these two sources. The ulama then categorize the beliefs in two main categories. Number one, al-ma'loom fi al-deen bi-dharura, which is known as daruriyatu al-deen, known in the deen of Allah by necessity. Number two, they have a category, al-ma'loom bi-dharura inda ahli sunnah, known by necessity according to the people of the sunnah. What is the first category? The first category relates to tenets of Iman which are known by every Muslim equally. Like the Iman in Allah, the Iman in angels, the Iman in Rusul, messengers, the Iman in the previous scriptures, the Iman in Al-Qadr, preordainment that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has preordained everything. The Iman in Jannah and Jahannam. These things are known by necessity how they are, have been transmitted very clearly in the Quran and the prophetic Sunnah. Very clearly. What is that known as? Qat'iyud Dalala and Qat'iyud Thubut which is very explicit mentioned very explicitly in the Quran and the Sunnah but also transmitted through mass transmission mass transmission 
These things are known as al-ma'loom fi din bi darura. Rejection of this entails unbelief. Like knowing that Islam is the final revelation and a denial of perennialism, which is believing that all the world's religions, they lead to salvation, this is kufr. Islam is the last revelation, untampered, final revelation. A knowing with regard to the finality of prophethood, that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi is khatamun nabiyyin. Why? Because this is stated very clearly in the Quran. مَا كَانَ مُحَمَّدٌ أَبَا أَحَدٍ مِّن رِجَالِكُمْ وَلَاكِنْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ وَخَاتَمَ النَّبِيِّينَ وَخَاتَمَ النَّبِيِّينَ Meaning, and the finality of prophets. This is a tenet of faith. So these things are known as المعلوم في الدين بالضرورة which every person should know. Sometimes there are aspects of المعلوم في الدين بالضرورة which may seem vague to lay people. For instance, the Qiraat of the Quran. Imagine an Imam leading the prayer and he says, And someone stops him and says, the verse is, Not knowing the Qiraat of Dha'at or not knowing the Qiraat within Surah Al-Fatiha. Maliki Yawmiddin. Someone interrupts him and says it's Maliki Yawmiddin. The Qiraat are mutawatir, as transmitted, but they are only known to specialists. Meaning every region has specialists who know them. Even though the Qiraat are ma'loom fi din bidarura. If there is this type of vagueness to a lay person, then the ulama do not rush to declare him an unbeliever. They inform him of his, they inform him and correct his ignorance. Then you have something which is known, as I said, al-ma'loom bid-darura inda ahli sunnah, known by necessity by ahli sunnah wal-jama'ah. Tenets of faith that if someone rejects, they do not become an unbeliever but they will become an innovator in the deen of Allah, mubtadi'. This happens because those tenets of faith may not be dalala, decisive in how they are alluded to, but there may be ijma' consensus regarding that tenet of faith. Or sometimes the tenet of faith is mutawatir, mass transmitted, but it is not qatiyud dalala. It is not decisive in how it's referred to. Or it could be the opposite. It is qatiyud dalala, it is referred to decisively, but it is khabrul wahid, it's not mass transmission. This then makes it distinct to the first category. This is known as like what the vision of Allah on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. On the Day of Judgment, we will see Allah, even though this is inferred from the Quran. Which is what 
faces on that day shall be resplendent, looking towards their Lord. So the Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah, they have an ijma' that the looking to their Lord entails vision of Allah. Other groups disputed this. They interpreted the verse differently. So this tenet of faith is not ma'loom fi din bi It's known by necessity by Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Or for instance, wiping upon the leather socks. It's narrated by dozens and dozens of companions But some of the groups deny this. It's mutawatir. But because the wording may differ, it's not qat'iyu dalala. So they disputed the interpretation. So it's ma'loom bi-darura in the ahli sunnah. Ahli sunnah know this by necessity, denial of which entails bid'ah. Innovation. Like this, there are certain things which are known by necessity with Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, but they become too detailed for the layperson. So the layperson cannot make a distinction between that tenet or have no, he may not have adequate knowledge with regard to that tenet. In that case, the layperson is informed if he makes a mistake in that regard. There are issues like that also. Within creed, there are creedal points. Like al-juz la yatajazza, the indivisible particle. A discussion which a layperson is not obligated to know. And if he, has, if he makes a mistake, he is informed with regard to the Sunni position on that. Unlike this, there are other aspects of discussions. Some are tenets, some are discussions that are not familiar to the layperson. Then there are those disputes where we have al-qawlul rajih wal-qawlul marjuh that there is a dispute but we know that the group that has made a claim, which is the minority group, they have made a mistake. But we do not declare them out of the fold of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Like what? There are issues, like sometimes a famous commentator of the Quran may say, A Sayyidatul Maryam salam was a Nabiya, a prophetess. Or oh, the same commentator of the Quran, he may have said that shaitan was not a jinn, he was an angel. This opposes the majority. But there is no ijma' on this issue. So therefore we refer to these aqwal as al-qawlul marjuh, the qawl which is not taken, a minority position. If it does not contradict Al-ma'loom fi din bi darura and it does not contradict al-darura in the Ahl Sunnah, then we do not declare the person a mubtadi' an innovator. Like this, there are other aqwal, which uh, today is not the place to detail that, but it's, it's essential for us to know these distinctions. Then the last category is something which we refer to as al-khilaf al-ja'iz, 
permitted disputes. Permitted disputes are where there is no majority qawl and people may take various positions or even be divided into two camps. It's essential that whenever we discuss any disputes, we know where to categorize those disputes. Is it al-ma'loom bid-darurah fid-deen? Or al-ma'loom bid-darurah fid-deen عند العامة والخاصة between the public and the ulama known by necessity or is it الضرورة عند الخاصة something which is known in the religion in the deen by necessity but it's only known to a specialist like the قراءات or is it الضرورة عند أهل السنة العامة والخاصة is it something known by the Sunnis the general public and the ulama or is it something only known to the, the ulama? That's four categories. Then a fifth category, is it something which is a valid dispute but one qawl is not a valid qawl? Like for instance, if there are some ulama who took a position that the parents of the Prophet passed away on unbelief, that qawl is al-qawlul marjuh it's not taken, it's not a valid qawl. We take the valid qawl, which is that they died either an, as Ahlul Fatra, the people in the gap period, or as Ahlul Iman, the people of Al-Iman, which is the valid qawl, Al-Qawlul Rajih. Or does this fall into a dispute, which is the last category, which is Al-Khilaful Jaiz? Is it those disputes which are permitted? Why I mention this is because so many of the disputes today, the sectarian disputes, people, even graduates who study in these courses for seven years, six years, I don't know what they study, meaning uh, I know what they are supposed to be studying, but when they come out, they cannot even be able to distinguish between these basic categories of disputes. It's essential to know which category the dispute belongs to. And like this, you will be able to place all the disputes of all the sects. For instance, Qadianis deny the finality of prophethood. That would be a denial of the first. Al-ma'loom fi al-deen bid-darurah عند al-aamati wal-khasa. Violating a tenet of faith which is known amongst the general public and the ulama. Like this, all the various disputes will always fall into one of these categories. So, when I started the lecture, I mentioned insan which is the task of man in this universe was servitude. The purpose of our living on this earth is to ultimately is what ma'rifah of Allah. And ma'rifah of Allah is only attained through the Quran and the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, which is the divine revelation, the final divine revelation sent to humanity. And the purpose of the worship that we do is to increase us in our ma'rifah of Allah. Ultimately, if worship ibadah does not increase you in ma'rifah of Allah, then the intention is wrong. The intention 
of that act of worship is wrong. And then I covered some aspects with regard to disputes and how to handle those disputes. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that we are able to act upon what was said. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم وأتوب إليه